Hello and welcome to the WPA OG podcast. This episode features an interview with Stephen Lee, class of 2001, COO and co-founder at Crowds, an innovative receivable software as a service fintech company set to revolutionize the $9 trillion receivables market. Stephen has over 18 years of hands-on leadership, operations, project management, logistics, finance, and personal training in the military, aerospace, and high-tech industries. Prior to Crowds, Stephen led and managed positions at SanDisk, Dell, Cisco, and Honeywell Aerospace. He received his dual master's degree at MIT Sloan, graduating with an MBA and MS in engineering. Previously, Stephen was a captain and combat veteran in the United States Army, having graduated from West Point in 2001. In this episode, Stephen talks about his background at West Point, serving a higher purpose throughout life, and why he's always rooted for the underdogs in business. He also discusses how he and the team at Crowds are paving the way for blockchain and finance by revolutionizing the $9 trillion receivables market. Now, please enjoy this interview between Stephen Lee, class of 2001, and your host, Todd Cooper, class of 1991. Hello, this is Todd Cooper, and I'm here this afternoon with Stephen Lee. Stephen is the COO and the co-founder of Crowds. Hey, Todd. How are you doing? Great. Steve, appreciate your time this afternoon and for what I think will be a very uh, a very intriguing and, and interesting conversation. No, I look forward to it, Todd. Thank you. I appreciate it. Stephen, maybe to, to get us started, why don't you tell us about uh, a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and your decision to attend West Point? Yeah, so I grew up in Los Angeles, obviously Southern California, and uh, you know my decision to attend West Point is threefold, right? Number one, I really wanted to develop myself as a leader. Number two, um, I've always had this sense of higher purpose. I wanted to join something that's actually bigger than myself, and obviously, you know, going to West Point. Uh, was extremely fulfilling in terms of um, service to my country. And then thirdly, I wanted to challenge myself. Obviously, those who've gone to the academies understand that it's not just academic, there's other components of it as well. And so I thought uh, it'd be a good developmental opportunity for me from the physical and military perspective as well, and from the emotional perspective as well, not just academic. You know, as I was going through... Um, my time at West Point, I felt like an emissions mistake, right? Um, I still remember um, shining my boots with a sock because I've never done it before. My boots look better before I shine them <laughs> compared to after I shine them. The interesting th- thing about that, Todd, was, um, you know, I had classmates that, that I can lean on. I had classmates that taught me. I had classmates that said, hey, you know, it'll be okay, I had classmates that gave me their food because I was so hungry. Still remember losing like 35 pounds during Beast. You know, you learn quickly that you have to work in teams in order to survive. And, you know, learning that at the age of, you know, 17, 18 years old, you know, spending an entire summer where, where you had to lean on your classmates and your peers, it, it just, it, it, it's an experience that I, I didn't have in high school. I mean, I played sports in high school, but you know, the fact that in order to get through something, you had to lean on someone. You had to trust others, right? And so, you know, that's something that obviously I carry with me to this day as well is 
there's an element of trust that is needed for an organization to move forward. And I can't do everything on my own. I have to trust others to perform. I have to trust other strengths to cover my weaknesses because I have a lot of weaknesses. And, you know, I, I've had to rely on, on the experiences of others to get me through things that I haven't experienced before. Definitely something that I think is directly applicable to crowds is I got to hire the right folks that, that can cover my gaps. Because if I hire someone exactly like me, that doesn't do any good right? There's no diversity there. And so the whole diversity of thought at West Point, the whole diversity of thought, even in the army, even though we have a a common purpose, a common mission in the army, the fact that, you know, the army is comprised of individuals that come from different backgrounds all over the country, you know, who knew I'd be living in Kentucky for a year, right? (laughs) Being from Southern California. I mean, just uh, it's mind-boggling, um, all the lessons learned that I learned from West Point and how that's applicable to crowds. The Army is and, and has been for a lot of years the model of diversity for the country, right? And I think the rest of the country should should seek to emulate more of what the Army does around uh, around diversity. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Shifting gears, maybe talk a little bit more about your time as a cadet. What type of cadet were you? How would you describe yourself? I was a pretty studious cadet, so I studied hard. I studied really hard. And the reason I studied hard was I didn't think my high school prepared me for West Point academically. You know, I still remember struggling during my plebe year, trying to pass, I think it was literature composition. It was a writing class, and I didn't do so well. And I I had to really try to, to stay afloat my first year. I studied a lot because I I studied to survive. Let's just put it that way. And again, you know, all jokes put aside, I I did feel like an admissions mistake. I mean, there, there were folks that were, you know, I had classmates that were brilliant and, you know, it comes down to that underdog mentality. Like even at West Point, I felt like an underdog. And then, you know, after my, I think it was after my first semester, things just started to click learn how to adapt, you know, academics became a little bit easier and the military aspect of it, which I've never experienced before, became a little bit easier. The physical aspect, you know, wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Mentally, you know, as a plebe, yeah, you got yelled at, um, but I started to adjust. And so I was, I, I studied a lot because I had to, not, not because I was this stellar academic stud. It it was, for me, it was survival. You know, I was also involved in some of the clubs, the Korean American Relations Seminar. That's a a club for Koreans. You know, I was involved in that. Honestly, I enjoyed my my West Point experience. Um, A lot of people say, you know, when you visit West Point and you look at the George Washington statue on the horse, it looks very majestic from the outside. And then when you look at it from the barracks outward, all you see is the <laughs> horse's ass, right? But I actually I actually enjoyed it um, in a weird, weird way. You know, so it's one of those things like, you know, every single place in my career, I felt out of place. And it took me, you know, a few months to get acquainted. And then something just clicks. Um, and then things just fall into place and, you know, th- then it becomes much easier. Oh, great. Yeah. Very, very interesting. 
And so after your time at West Point, you went into the Army. Maybe just walk us through your, your Army career. Yeah, so um, after I graduated, I was commissioned, obviously, second lieutenant. Um, I did the five and out. I uh, was stationed at Fort Lewis, Washington. I served uh, on a deployment to Mosul, uh, Iraq, in 2004 and 2005. So essentially five and out. Those were tough years in, in Iraq. Is there anything particularly memorable or noteworthy about, about your, your, your years there? Something that was really interesting that I probably wouldn't have experienced before is, is really working with multinational armies, right? Um, I got to, to work with the, the special forces um, from Turkey. And it's one of those experiences where it's not just the, the U.S. Army, it's other armies that you're trying to coordinate operations with. And so that, that was a very unique experience for me. We're at the end of your five-year commitment. How did you think about the transition? And maybe just walk us through your experience from leaving the Army up until where you are now as the, as the COO and the co-founder of Crowds. You know, honestly, when I got out of the military, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I went through one of those uh, junior officer recruiting agencies, and um, I took a job with Honeywell Aerospace in Phoenix, Arizona. And obviously, that's where I met you, right? I think you were serving as, as one of the executives there. And that's where I met you, Todd, uh, many moons ago. That's right. I remember that. <laughs> and then after my time at Honeywell, I spent two years getting a dual degree at MIT. Um, it's called the Leaders for Global Operations Program, where you get your master's in engineering and your, your MBA at Sloan. And again, Todd, um, I still remember you writing my my recommendation to get into that program um, as well. So um, it, it just proves to serve that, uh, you know, the West Point network is, is really strong, right? And then um, after I graduated from MIT, uh, I came to Silicon Valley and worked in a variety of tech-related companies, specifically around procurement and sourcing. Then I uh, decided to start uh, uh, this company called Crowds, Crowds with a Z. And, you know, it was something, it, it was definitely a hard decision because I was, you know, kind of in my later stages of my career. Uh, it wasn't like I was 20 years old or anything like that. And, you know, the reason for me actually quitting my full-time job and doing crowds is, you know, one of the things I really missed in the Army um, and, and West Point in general is, is serving a higher purpose, right? And so crowds actually afforded me the opportunity to be able to serve a higher purpose. And I, I can go into a little more detail a little bit later on, on what that is. Yeah, let, let's go there because that's certainly been, I think, one of the things, and, and I'm sure the two of us aren't alone, but as I, as I moved out of the, the military into the civilian world, just that lack of purpose, uh, it's, just, it's just different, right? It's, it's different in, in, in the corporate world than it, than it is in the military. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, there you wear many hats, obviously, and your actions or your lack of actions can have a huge impact on the company, right? Whereas, you know, obviously in the corporate world, if you're in a big company, it, you can get shielded in a lot of ways. But, uh, you know, definitely as an entrepreneur, you're you're definitely exposed, right? So, <laughs> yes, you had a smaller business. The, the cause and effect are, are much more direct. Right. 
So, Steve, we, you and I met at, at Honeywell Aerospace in, in context of uh, just a, a mentorship relationship. Maybe you could spend a few minutes in just talking about mentorship, talking about mentors you've had throughout your careers, the impact those, those people have had, and how did, you, how did you cultivate, how did you develop and cultivate those, those relationships? Yeah, I, I mean, Todd, you know, I met you when I was really young, actually, you know, just did my five and out out of the Army. You know, obviously, I went to Honeywell Aerospace in, in Arizona. You know, as soon as I joined uh, that organization, I went on one of the um, databases, alumni databases, and was able to kind of see if there were any West Point grads uh, within the organization. Brand new out of the Army, um, first job out of the Army, I, I definitely needed coaching and guidance and mentorship. And so did the search and your name came up. And, uh, you know, I realized that uh, my boss reported to his boss, to his boss, to his boss, and then all the way up through you. So if it wasn't for the West Point alumni and network, I don't think I would have had the, the fortitude to literally reach out to an executive um, and say, hey, can we talk? Um, as a matter of fact, I think my boss would have been pretty irritated with me if I did that because I'd jump several levels and go directly to to you. But the fact that, you know, we had a common network and common bond through our experiences um, was, you know, enough license for me to actually reach out um, being a new new employee and, and try to develop that type of relationship with you. I'm glad you did. In fact, I still remember when we met on the on the factory floor in Tempe. I believe you were you were a cell leader at the time. Uh, and then for the broader audience, uh, the highlight of my month, Steve and I used to have monthly uh, mentorship sessions at Four Peaks Brewing in, uh, <laughs> in Phoenix. So for those of you from the, the Valley of the Sun, you'll, you'll know that was, uh, that was certainly a great, great place to meet. Yeah, I, I actually miss their beers. They, they, I think they brew their own beer. So it was really good beer. Um, so I, I definitely enjoyed that time. And, you know, it, it, it's interesting, Todd, right? Because we've known each other for you know, 15, 20 years, it's been, it's been a quite, quite a ride. And, um, you know, I, I definitely value, um, uh, the, the mentorship, um, you know, there was, um, always a sense of security for me to use you as a, as a sounding board, you know, as I transitioned from, you know, the army to a new company to the civilian civilian world. And, you know, it, even now, I mean, I, I reached out to you to, to ask if you were interested on serving on the board of directors of Crowds as an independent director because, you know, of all the valuable things that I've experienced through our mentorship. And, and you know, it, it's, been, it's been great even now as you were serving on the board of directors of Crowds. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And it's been, uh, I've, I've enjoyed and certainly benefited from our relationship as well. And it's been great getting getting to know you and and also, in a way, living vicariously through you, as you and I have taken two two different routes through uh, through corporate America. You you more on the entrepreneurial side, obviously, and and me in the more on the more traditional corporate path. Yeah, and um, Todd, I, I love for uh, the audience to kind of get to know you a little bit better and your path to success. You know, if you could maybe shed some color on on yourself and your background and your experiences. Sure, sure, I'd be, I'd be glad to. So for those of you don't, who don't know me, again, I'm Todd Cooper, uh, grew up in Northern California, uh, class of 91 graduate. I was in H2, 
Uh, upon commissioning, I went into the Corps of Engineers, uh, spent the bulk of my time in the 14th Engineer Battalion, uh, the 555-555 Engineering Brigade, first at Fort Ord. Uh, and then when Fort Ord was closed, uh, I, I spent the rest of my time at, at Fort Lewis. Uh, similar to Steve, I did, uh, did my five years and, and, then, uh, and then decided to get out. Um, when I got out, I wasn't quite sure what to do. So I, uh, I followed in the footsteps of, of my roommate uh, who'd gotten out a year earlier, a year before me, Scott Howarth. And Scott had discovered this uh, dual degree program at MIT that, that Steve had, had mentioned, uh, the, the Leaders for, for Global Operations program, where over the course of two years, you can get a master's degree in engineering and, a mas- and, a, and an MBA. Uh, my parents were school teachers. Again, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. So that I uh, figured I'd go get two degrees and then figure out which one I liked better. Uh, I ended up, after graduating from, from MIT, uh, gravitating more towards the business side. Uh, I spent a, a number of years at McKinsey after MIT. Uh, and then I was at, at Honeywell, uh, where, where Steve, and I, Steve and I met. Uh, and then following Honeywell, I spent almost 10 years at, at KKR in, in the private equity world as, as an operating partner, uh, working with the KKR investment teams, as well as with all of our portfolio companies on all things supply chain. Uh, and so whether that's manufacturing, logistics, procurement and sourcing, uh, also spent a lot of time on, on ESG, uh, the idea of the double bottom line uh, impact or doing, as we used to say at KKR, doing well by doing good. Uh, and then I also had the privilege while at KKR of, of working across our portfolio companies and encouraging all of our portfolio companies to hire veterans. And so I co-led with a couple other graduates, the, we call it Vets at Work, but the Veterans Hiring Program. Um, which today, as of, uh, you know, I think as KKR has hired now, KKR portfolio companies have now hired over 100,000 veterans uh, since we founded that back in, in 2011. Uh, I joined Celestica five years ago. Celestica is a global electronics contract manufacturing business. Uh, we have 30 factories around the world, uh, build primarily industrial uh, or business to business electronics, enterprise grade electronics. Uh, I spent the first four years as, as the COO, and then earlier this year, I took over as division president, uh, essentially running half of, half of the company, including our aerospace and defense business. And I must say, uh, you know, getting back into more of a, a national security and a defense type role, uh, you know, has, has has been invigorating, and and, and just kind of getting back to uh, getting back to my tribe, so to speak, is uh, yeah, has been a dimension of the role I've, I've really liked. Uh, and then on a personal note, I, I live in Connecticut. Um, I've been blessed with an amazing wife. Uh, we also have four terrific kids, uh, including my oldest son, who's a plebe in the class of 2026. So anyway, enough enough about me, Steve. You want to uh, go back to crowds? Just you going through your background. I mean, I know your background, but just to hear it again, it's just uh, this is why I have so much respect for you. Um, not just your experiences, but the fact that you have four kids, that's, that's quite a feat, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, well, at the end of the day, uh, I go back to, uh, I'm sure you've heard Je- Jeff Foxworthy has a, you know, he has, he has a saying where he says he's two, two bad decisions from hanging sheetrock in a subdivision outside of Atlanta. And yeah. so, <laughs> so why don't we pivot in, to crowds, uh, you know, this, this business that, that you founded, and maybe you can explain in, 
and just talk the audience through the value proposition. Tell us a little bit about crowds and and, and the value proposition. Yeah, so um, crowds started in 2014, and you know we officially launched our platform and our product a few years ago. And so essentially, what we do is we're a Web three platform to connect uh, sellers and funders that want to sell and and buy receivables. So receivables can take many different forms. It could be um, invoices, purchase orders. It can be recurring revenue SaaS contracts. So think of like eBay for receivables, where we're the technology platform and we link the buyer and the seller to come together and transact. And we do that in a very automated fashion. And you know our focus is really helping the small medium business to sell their receivables in order to improve their cash flow, which obviously is during this time is 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 really critical, right? Um, especially for small medium businesses. So we're really focused on that segment. You know, one of the things that that we've been able to do is we've been able to digitize as well as automate this transaction of receivables. We're able to bundle multiple receivables as an investment vehicle. And so now it becomes somewhat compelling for the funders. And, you know, in the market, there there hasn't been a, a an effective way to really risk rate the small, medium businesses up to this point. And so we saw that as a huge hole in the in the market. And the fact that we're building this marketplace through our platform, we're actually able to capture uh, live data and incorporate that using our proprietary algorithm to actually risk rate the receivable at the receivable level, and then in turn take that and risk rate the small, medium business entity level uh, and, and do that real time, which the industry hasn't seen before, right? And so, you know, over the course of uh, a few years um, after we've launched, we've We've transacted, you know, almost close to $100 million in receivable financing. Uh, we've partnered with Meta to offer that as a white label solution. So we're the technology that uh, runs that entire platform for Meta. And, uh, you know, we're also working with uh, Citibank um, to do something very similar with them as well. But also Citibank is is really focused on uh, the recurring revenue SaaS contracts um, and using crowds as the technology platform for that. Wow. It's a powerful value proposition. And so if I, I play this back to you, just so I have it right, on one hand, and I, maybe we'd say the primary value proposition is to small to medium-sized businesses. It allows them to sell their, we'll call it their long-dated receivables, their long-duration long receivables for immediate cash flow. It also secondarily helps a class of investors or funders who, um, for relatively low risk, to get relatively low risk returns by buying those uh, by buying those receivables, and they'll earn a return on that. And then third, and and although I, I think it it happens secondarily, it, it may turn out to be the strongest uh, part of the value proposition. Ultimately, we'll see how it plays out. But this idea that you and the crowds team are able to provide risk scores on small to medium-sized businesses, which is an area that just 
you know, people have been trying to do this for years and no one's successfully cracked the code, but it seems like in terms of your surf score and your data analytics and the data you're gathering, you're able to put together a, um, actually a, yeah, a risk score, a credit score for these small to medium businesses. Is that, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, just to add to that, Todd, right? Um, small, medium businesses comprise about anywhere between 65 to 70% of GDP. Yet, you know, small, medium businesses really can't get favorable rates, whether it comes to a loan or whether they go directly to a traditional factoring company. Um, the rates are extremely high because they're small and they don't have like the financial girth of a large enterprise like Celestica, for example, right? And so what we do is we're trying to democratize that where we take an invoice that's $100,000, bundle it up with a thousand other invoices, and now it becomes a portfolio that is a value of you know, 25 to $35 million. And we sell that portfolio of receivables to financial institutions. And now it becomes compelling to, to bigger banks and bigger financial institutions. Whereas, you know, in the past, small and medium business would go to a bank or to whoever to say, hey, are you interested in buying my $100,000 invoice? And uh, these institutions are not because it's very manual and process. $100,000 is just chump change uh, for these banks. And so it's a lot like what they used to do with mortgages. They used to, you know, package it together. Uh, but we're actually, you know, different than mortgages. We're actually doing the risk rating in an automated fashion using our proprietary algorithm, right? To be able to say, okay, this portfolio, this $35 million portfolio has a risk profile of this. And, you know, different investment firms or institutions can come and take a position in a part of that portfolio or can buy the entire portfolio itself. So it's a win-win. You know, it, it is a win for the small, medium businesses that get better rates. And it's also a win for um, financial institutions who are looking for alternative forms of investment. And, and so we're just that, we're that marketplace, that platform that brings those two entities together to allow these transactions to happen in an automated and digitized fashion. And then as we capture that data, we're able to uh, risk rate certain components um, using our proprietary algorithm in a very automated way as well. Wow, really cool. Let's maybe for our listeners, Steve, let me give you an example and then you just walk us through. I just want to bring it down a level in terms of how this how, mechanically how this works. So let's say we have a, a small to medium business. Let's call it Todd's janitorial service. I have a number of blue chip clients who, you know, who I clean their offices, but they all have me on 60, 75, 90 day payment terms, uh, right? And as a small business, you know, that 60 to 75 to 90 day cash cycle is, is painful. So what can crowds do for me? Yeah. So, you know, for Todd's janitorial service, um, typically for small, medium businesses, they, they live and die with cash as kind of their lifeblood, right? That's obvious. That goes without saying, right? So rather than Todd's janitorial service waiting net 90 days to get paid, the janitorial service company has the option to actually onboard themselves onto our platform. So we do an entire know your business, uh, know your customer 
KYB, KYC onboarding, and that's all automated too. It's all digitized. Once they onboard themselves, they can go ahead and actually upload their invoices. And then it becomes visible to other funders who want to potentially buy that invoice at a discounted rate, right? And so um, we have the ability to, based on the risk profile, to recommend what that discount rate should be. You know, it's 95 cents on a dollar or what that, you know, that's just an example. And then it's really up to the funder on whether or not they accept that as the discount rate and whether or not they're willing to buy the invoice from Todd's janitorial service. So once that transaction occurs, Todd's janitorial service gets, let's say it's a $100,000 invoice and they sell it for $95,000, they get that $95,000 in the next 24 to 48 hours. And they can use that cash to make payroll. They can use that cash to buy raw materials to fulfill larger orders. Um, they can use that cash for to, to buy equipment or hire more folks because they're, they're coming out of the pandemic and they're starting to grow again. There's multiple use cases, obviously, but the fact that we put cash in the hands of these small, medium businesses actually helps them thrive in, in an economy that's you know, pretty harsh right now, especially with inflation and all, all the things that are going on. Yeah, de- it definitely is a choppy economy right now. And as, as you described the, the value proposition, and ho- hopefully our audience can, uh, can relate, but particularly in these uncertain economic times, I mean, the beauty of crowds and part of that, that sense of purpose and higher purpose we both talked to uh, earlier becomes evident in that you and the crowds team are enabling these small to, to medium-sized businesses to improve their cash flow, to support their operations, to grow, and what are choppy choppy times for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, to be honest with you, being an entrepreneur, you know, those have, that have gone through this, it, it's pretty difficult, right? It's kind of a, an EKG machine. It's not even a roller coaster. <laughs> roller coaster is a transition, right? But in EKG machine, you get these highs and then you get flatlined and they get these highs and flatlined. At least for me, from a personal standpoint, the thing that really gets me through those hard times is that vision and impact, right? It's being able to serve a higher purpose to help these, these, I mean, I call them underdogs. My dad owned a small, medium business as well growing up and I knew how hard it was for him. I've seen, I've seen it firsthand. And so, you know, I grew up as an underdog and the fact that, you know, we're providing a platform to help the underdogs in the business world is extremely compelling and fulfilling for me. Right. And that's what actually gets me through the rough times. It's that fulfillment that we're helping the underdogs that gets me through those rough, rough tides. Right. Wow. Wow. That's that's powerful. That's really good. So, Steve, I guess maybe taking a step back from a, a broader picture, where is crowds and I guess you'd say in its in its growth cycle and its in its ramp? What's the trajectory of the business and, and how are you thinking about the, the future from here? Yeah, you know, as I mentioned, we're almost at around a hundred million dollars of uh, transactions, right? You know, I mentioned Meta. Um, so what Meta is doing is they're actually putting up the capital to buy invoices um, in the U.S. from diverse and minority companies. So that includes women-owned, Hispanic, Black, Asian, veteran-owned, LGBTQ, uh, handicapped. And so, you know, 
that that actually speaks to me very personally because you know I myself am a veteran. I'm also a minority. We've done quite a bit of business with with Meta as their tech platform for their program, and that program is rolled out to to all minority and diverse owned businesses uh, throughout the U.S. And so that's been a a, a pretty cool um, program to to be able to partner with with Meta to be able to do that. Citibank, you know, I talked a little bit about Citibank. They're really looking at how does Citibank utilize the surf score to actually expand their growth um, into the small and medium business segment. And then also, uh, you know, one of the things that we're talking with Citibank about is this reoccurring revenue piece, which is a form of receivable. And so basically, it's like uh, Uber One, right? Uber One came out with this subscription. It's like $10 a month or whatever it might be. And you get you know, preferential treatment when, when hailing rides, you know, you get the, the best rated drivers and you also get like a 10% or 15% discount. Um, and it's a subscription base. So can we take that yearly subscription that's worth, let's say $120, $10 a month at a discounted price? So not 120, but maybe at 110. And then every month, whoever bought that would receive that $10 a month of recurring revenue from a, the subscription basis, right? So that's what's called, you know, um, recurring revenue SaaS contracts that, you know, we're hoping to, to kick off with City relatively, relatively soon. That's a form of re- receivable. And then, you know, if you look at global reach um, in terms of trajectory, uh, we've actually uh, launched with... Um, a firm called EG in Australia. They're a real estate asset management firm. And again, this is an opportunity where they want to um, help facilitate the buying and selling of receivables using our technology. It's interesting because um, the pandemic, we saw a huge increase in traction for obvious reasons, you know, small, medium businesses need cash. Uh, and even now, with the economy being a little bit choppy and with inflation, we're starting to see gr- huge growth as well because of the fact that small, medium businesses need cash in order to, to thrive. It's interesting how things have played out from a timing perspective, where the solution of crowds is actually really needed right now. It's the perfect storm. When there's a burning platform of businesses either going out of business or not knowing how to scale effectively because of cash, crowds, it's in our, it's in our DNA. We're, we're compelled to help those small, medium businesses and, and those underdogs. So um, it's, it's been, it's been a, a pretty exciting ride so far. That's great. And I think you've, you've done a really nice job explaining the value proposition to the small to medium-sized enterprises, um, also to, to banks, like with Citigroup in terms of how they can facilitate their own trade payables, their own credit operations, as well as the, the credit scoring. Could you take a minute and maybe from a funder point of view, and I know a lot of, uh, I know a lot of our fellow graduates are, are in the investment community, but what's the value proposition, Steve, to, to a group of investors or people who might come and buy, the, buy these receivables? I'm sure I'll forget, you know, a couple of value props at the funder side, but I, some big ones come to mind. Number one, this is not a loan. You know, whenever a receivable is bought, it's called, it's a true sale, and so it's like buying a car or buying a boat. There's an actual ownership title to this, right? And so, 
it's an actual true sale. And the value prop, again, is when these financial institutions try to do this, it's, it's been so manual. It hasn't been digitized. It hasn't been automated. They don't know how to risk rate um, these smaller entities. And so, you know, this is where we come in and we offer a tool that they can utilize to say, hey, based on all the data that's been going through our platform, um, we also give the, the small, medium businesses the ability to, to integrate their accounting platforms onto our portal. And again, that rich data that we receive helps us evaluate that the risk profile and then which translates to, you know, what the discount rate should be when they sell that receivable. And so all this information and all this data that hasn't existed in the past now are at the fingertips of these funders. And it's all automated. It's all digitized, right? So that, that's a value prop. The second value prop I, I would say to funders is, you know, like I said, it's not a loan. It's a 30, 60, 90, 120 day term, right? So it's relatively short in duration, which uh, you know should reduce the risk compared to a four year loan. And so that that in itself, it's it, you know you could take your cash and you can actually turn around pretty quickly. You can do it, you know, six times a year, nine times a year, depending on what the net payment terms are. And, and you you know as a funder, you can take that cash, deploy it, relatively low risk, get a return, and then redeploy it and redeploy it, and so forth and so on. You know you can actually you know get returns of twelve to you know thirty percent APR by doing that, by churning over that cash over and over again, right? And so that's a value prop. The other value prop, which we haven't launched into the market yet, but we're looking to do in Q1 is this whole, you know, I mentioned earlier, we're a Web3 company and we're looking to launch our token. And this token is very different than what the market's used to seeing. The value prop of this token is able to track who owns what. Right. So, for example, let's say you have a 90 day invoice, a funder buys that invoice, but only wants to hold it for 10 days. And there's still 80 days remaining on that. That funder can go ahead and resell that in the secondary market. And then whoever bought that invoice decides they're going to only want to hold it for 20 days. Uh, There's still 60 days remaining on that invoice and they can resell it again on that market. And every time there's a change in ownership and all this, it's really hard to track with the current tools that we have now. We're also, we've been on Ethereum blockchain since 2017. What the token does is we mint the coin on the blockchain and all the transactions that I just described in terms of secondary markets and selling and reselling of the asset, it's tracked by that token. So what we utilize the token for is to track the assets. And it's nothing more than it's like a deed to a house. Hey, you own this house or it's a title to a, to a vehicle when you purchase a vehicle. You own this vehicle, right? That's all this token is doing, but it's able to track all of that. What's interesting is um, I mentioned like a $35 million portfolio, for example. Some institutions don't want to buy the entire thing. They may only want to take a 20% position on that, right? Just like, you know, when you're about to purchase Bitcoin, you don't you don't have to purchase an entire Bitcoin. You can purchase 20% of a Bitcoin. And so what this token allows is for the, the ability to do just that, is take a certain percentage 
position on a portfolio and let others take uh, another position on that portfolio and is able to, again, track the ownership uh, and the transactions um, that happen uh, through through this marketplace. So it's a pretty pretty powerful thing. The market hasn't seen anything like this. Can we actually utilize this to make the market more efficient and secure through the use of tokens and blockchain? So, so those are probably the three biggest um, value propositions for a funder that I can think of uh, off the top of my head at this point. That's great. And I think very comprehensive and, and certainly I think gives everyone a, a flavor or a perspective on just the multidimensional attractiveness of, of crowds, right? And again, this, this is a business based on helping small to medium-sized businesses, the underdogs, as you call them, get a leg up, improve their cash flow and to drive, to drive growth. Uh, while at the same time offering a very interesting uh, value proposition to to investors, to to funders, people who are interested or might want to buy these invoices, as well as to banks and others, just because of the insight you're driving through um, the risk ratings on these small to small to medium sized businesses. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, as you pointed out, you know, our long term goal, our long term strategy, we're a data company, we're a tech company, and we're a data company. In order to, to get the data, we're actually generating the data through our marketplace. So it is, it's organic to, to our platform. Yeah, exactly. Now, you're at um, closing in on $100 million of receivables funded. What's the path from here? Where, what, what's the short, medium, long-term plan for, for crowds from here? Yeah, so um, our goal by the end of 2023 is to be at about a billion dollars worth of, of business running through our platform in terms of transactions. You know, obviously that's a, a, a pretty aggressive goal, but, you know, we do have line of sight to that number. We're continuing to do the program with Meta. You know, obviously we're, we're um, expecting to launch uh, a couple programs with Citibank. We got some other huge logos um, that are almost across the finish line in terms of signing contracts and, and things of that nature, which I can't disclose at this point because, you know, I'm under NDA, but they're, they're, they're pretty major logos as well. And, and with also the, the launch of EG in Australia, we think that is a huge growth opportunity as well. And so with all these, all these opportunities, with all these big clients, um, we think there, that there actually is a path to a billion dollars by the end of 2023. As a board member, I, I must add, right, that part of our role on the on the board is to make sure that that you and the crowds team have the line of sight, have have the tangible roadmap to getting from a hundred million to a billion, and also making sure that that you have the support to to get there. Steve, based on that, I'd ask you to take a take a step back and reflect for a minute. But thinking about West Point, your experiences at West Point, your experiences as an Army officer. How did those experiences kind of shape you and and help create in you the the leader that that founded crowds and that is you know continuing to drive and grow the business? Yeah, there were a lot of lessons learned at West Point, right? Um, but I, I think there are a couple that actually have a direct relationship to to what I do at Crowds right now. Um, you know, one of the things at West Point. Um, being thrown into beast, you come into an organization with uh, a lot of folks from different backgrounds. You know, I, I think 
just the people aspect of it, right? Working through the diversity of thought, the diversity of perspectives. You know, diversity is what makes organizations more robust. I truly believe in that. However, there is a trade-off. With diversity of thought and experiences and so forth and so on, there are disagreements that happen, obviously. And the question is, how do you, how do you allow healthy dialogue um, to, to actually make a solution more robust? But then how do you make a decision and go without all the information that you have at your disposal and align everyone to that direction, whether or not he or she believes that it is the right direction or not, right? That's what I learned at West Point. Uh, being exposed to different different people, you know, I still remember I had a roommate, Clayton Amsler. Um, he's now, I think, one of the directors of the FBI. But uh, he's never, I don't think he's ever had Korean food. <laughs> and I was his roommate. And, you know, it's, just, it's one of these things where, you know, I pulled out a bag of seaweed and he was like, what is that? Um, he's like, oh, my gosh, like. It was just, it was a foreign thing to him, right? And you know, it, it's it's pretty cool to 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 introduce others to things that they haven't experienced before. You know, by the end of the by the end of our uh, our tenure there, he was he was eating seaweed like it was a, a midnight snack. So it goes to show that you know the the diversity of thought, perspectives, experience to be able to work through that and to come up with a more robust solution is 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 pretty cool. The second thing is uh, taking chaos and creating some level of clarity. You know, I learned that at West Point. There's so many things that are flying your way that, you know, you have to have the ability to separate what's noise and what's really important. And what that's done for me at Crowds is everyone knows that, you know, when you go into a new environment, you're drinking through a fire hose. But I, I do think by doing that, it's, there's a lot of wasted energy. What West Point has taught me is identify what's noise and what's important. And then that's allowed me to actually prioritize my learning. Um, what do I need to learn first to understand the foundation? What do I need to learn second to start becoming dangerous? What do I need to learn third? And that doesn't mean learn everything. But it's just a prioritized learning that helps me um, frame my mindset to say, okay, what what do I need to learn to, to launch X? Or what do I need to learn first, second, and third? So it's that prioritized learning and literally taking chaos and trying to create some clarity that has, has helped us um, here at Crowds. And then the third thing I think is, is grit. You know, entrepreneurship, as I mentioned, is, is hard. It is hard. Sometimes you feel you feel alone, right? Um, and, you know, I think we as leaders have all experienced this where leadership is, is a lonely platform. You know, there's a, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of responsibility. You don't want to let your folks down. And you go through these rough times. And, you know, just like West Point, I still remember doing ruck marches and, you know, getting blisters and you just keep going. You keep going and, you know, there's something about the mind that actually transcends your body, right? Your body says, no, I can't go anymore, but your mind is so much more powerful. Having gone through some of those experiences that are really challenging for me at West Point helped me get through so, some of the challenging um, t- 
times here here at Crowds as well. So those are probably the the three things that are extremely relevant to what I've learned at West Point and that I've taken here uh, at Crowds as well. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing those and just playing them back. I I, I would say that you know the the value of diversity and I, I call it iron sharpens iron, but the the vigorous debate of of ideas uh, as long as you can keep it constructive is certainly powerful. Uh, this idea of chaos uh, and structuring problems and structuring situations to drive clarity and then drive action along with grit. And as you're saying, as you're saying that reminded me, I, I think our old saying was suck, suck it up and drive on. Clearly those, those three are, are highly applicable as an entrepreneur. I would also say just more broadly in, in corporate America as, as an executive, those, those three, uh, those three attributes are um, I think are essential to, to success in, in, in a number of roles. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's definitely applicable to, to any organization that you join, as long as the organization, you know, uh, values diversity. I think you and I both recognize and appreciate the, the value of, uh, of the West Point Alumni Network. Maybe you can share with our audience what some ways or how do, how do you stay connected with, with your classmates and, and with West Point and the alumni more broadly? With my classmates, you know, we, we all always have a special bond because of the things that we've been through together that, you know, normal educational institutions don't get to experience. You know, things like the military experience as a cadet to doing, you know, parades, to delivering laundry, uh, to going through a, a pretty, pretty tough uh, plebe year. You know, those are all things that are very unique. Uh, to West Point, right? And so that bond or that experience actually brings us together. And even though I haven't been able to speak to some of my classmates in years, you know, some of which I haven't spoken to in 20 years, whenever we do meet up or we reunite, you know, it's it's almost like, you know, there's not even a skip of a beat, right? Myself, I, I bend over backwards for any one of my classmates who, who needs help, right? Um, that's in terms of my classmates. Uh, in terms of the actual network, I, I do use iSaber um, to help me connect to uh, alumni that I do not know. And then obviously, you know, using LinkedIn, I'm always leveraging the network to be able to, to get advice and perspective from, um, from alumni um, who have experienced, you know, the, the whole entrepreneurship journey to helping me make connections with those within their network. And, and so it, it's, a, it's a wide variety of things that I, I, I do to utilize the network. Um, and I do believe it is one of the strongest networks in the world. You know, as I mentioned, Todd, that's how I got connected to you as well. So I agree. It is a, it is a very powerful network. And certainly I, uh, I leverage it in some of the same ways you do through, through LinkedIn, through connections with classmates or or just reaching out to other old, old grads. And it's, uh, it's, it's certainly been beneficial to me, you know, personally and, and in business on, on multiple occasions. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Steve, shifting gears for a minute, maybe talk to us about, you know, as a, as a decorated military officer, as an Iraqi war veteran, as a successful fintech entrepreneur, what are some of the, the parallels that, that you see between, you know, being a, a military officer, being in the fintech, um, 
you know, what's the same, what's different? Maybe you could just share some thoughts on that front. Yeah, I guess I could start with what's the same. It's very similar. Um, And I think this just goes beyond just the fintech uh, industry. It's just, you know, when I compare my experience in at West Point, as well as in the army, compare that to the entrepreneurship journey that I'm on, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty and ambiguity. And for those that that are grads and served in the military, this goes without saying, but it's being able to operate in an environment that's very ambiguous. The answers aren't there. You know, a lot of times we're creating technologies in the fintech industry, technologies that the industry hasn't even seen before. So regulations is very hazy. Uh, we ask our legal department, hey, how do we structure this in a way that's compliant and legal? In some cases, they'll, they'll come back and say, we don't know because no one's ever done this in the industry. So being able to navigate through those situations, I think, you know, having been a West Point graduate and in the Army um, allowed me to kind of be somewhat comfortable in that type of environment, right? Um, and that's directly relatable to being an entrepreneur. The other thing is, is uh, I would say, is grit. There, there were many times where um, while I was at West Point, you know, I've wanted to quit. Going on those road marches and having blisters and, you know, going through at, at that point, you know, times that I, you know, didn't want to experience um, having never been in the military before. Um, and it's just having that grit, that determination to say, okay, well, the whole mind over body thing, you know, I know my body is breaking down, but how do I stay within the fight and allow my mind to actually overcome the physical pain, right? And in the same sense, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, you're going through um, ups and downs, going through valleys, uh, there, not everything is rosy. Um, there are very, very difficult times. There are times where, um, you know, we struggle to make payroll. There are things that directly affect people's lives that that become a burden and a responsibility to, to us, right? And so during those times, you know, it's one of those things where grit comes into play. Uh, for me personally, it's the whole mission of helping small, medium businesses that became a guiding light to help me get through those rough times. And then military, you know, very similarly, there are, you know, the, the mission of the army, the purpose of the army, the purpose of serving our country, there's a higher purpose than a purpose for one's just own individual life, right? So those are some of the similarities. Um, some of the differences, and, and this isn't just for entrepreneurs. It, it, some of the differences is, you know, I think it's just being a civilian that's very different. You know, I still remember coming out of the military, you know, in the military and at West Point, you know, if someone's going through a rough time, there's a lot of involvement there. And when I say involvement, it's, Someone's going through a divorce or someone's having some personal issues. In the military, you don't detach those things, right? The personal issues actually have a direct impact on the professional one. And, you know, in civilian life, you have to bifurcate those two things um, due to privacy and and respect of others, um, personal space, things of that nature. And so that was what was very different. 
right? I can't go to my colleagues, even at a startup and say, hey, you know, tell me what's going on in your personal life, right? If they don't want to disclose it. And so that's, that's a, a big difference as well. And then, you know, another difference, and, and this might sound kind of funny, is <clears throat> there's this whole saying of, you know, when, when you're a CEO or COO or that stuff rolls downhill when things go wrong, right? And you hear that in, in, in bigger corporate institutions. Um, in a startup, it's, it's the opposite. It's stuff rolls uphill, right? Um, if something goes wrong, you're accountable for it at the highest level, right? It goes the other direction. That's what's a little bit different about my experience at West Point, the Army, and then my experience as an entrepreneur as well. Now, pivoting slightly, touching on something you just mentioned, what West Point values have you, have you taken with you? And how have those values shaped you as a COO? I think one of the, the key values at West Point is integrity, right? I take that to heart. That's one of my core leadership principles um, is to always act with, with a sense of integrity. And I, I've taken that through not just my time in the Army and in corporate America, but also through my entrepreneurship journey. It takes a certain level of trust among colleagues to, for them to really grit it out with you. Has to say, right? So a lot of the things that we as entrepreneurs do, it's a choice, right? It's, you know, you don't have to, to stay up to the wee hours in the morning. You don't have to, to work crazy hours or fall asleep at your desk and keep going, right? Um, it, it's a choice. So a lot of those dynamics, um, I think really does come down to integrity and do you have the trust of, of those um, that work with you? And so that's one value that I've, I've taken with me from West Point that directly parallels uh, what I'm doing as an entrepreneur. You know, West Point has, I think, as we both recognize for, and for both of us, has, has shaped us into the, into the men we are, shaped us into the leaders that we are. We have both benefited from, from the experience, from the you know, from our time at West Point, our time in the Army, our, our, our time, uh, you know, in, in the alumni net, broader alumni network. But how do, you, how do you give back? You know, one of the things I like to do in terms of helping give back is now that crowds is, is kind of surfaced as a legitimate uh, fintech, I do like to share my experiences with those that have been in the military as well. So... You know, I did attend the Entrepreneur Summit um, in Washington, D.C. a few months ago. I'm also one of the, the panelist speakers in the Military Veteran Conference um, that's happening next week in San Francisco. And so, you know, in terms of giving back, um, I always make it an effort to try to offer perspective and most of the perspective, to be honest with you, on this entrepreneurship journey is, is lessons learned. You know, things that I've done in the past that have made mistakes. And, and I try to share that with um, fellow military veterans, right? That's one of the things that, that I do enjoy doing in terms of giving back, is to be able to share my lessons learned. So those that are trying to do something similar in nature don't end up making those types of mistakes as well. 
I think it's similar along the lines of, yeah, in, a, in the way that we've been helped by the alumni network and fellow alums that we in turn then, yeah, help help those around us as well as those those coming up be coming up behind us. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 Todd, you know, I, I was always interested. Maybe I can ask you a quick question. Is going back to you know years from, you know, years at Honeywell where I met you, like, you know, what made you actually respond to my email and and, and say, hey, yeah, let's go ahead and meet up and have a, a a chat. You know, what what spurred you to do that? Actually, I think it's very similar to what you've just you've just articulated. Right, this this fact that uh, whenever I reach out to to a fellow grad, there's just regardless of how how busy people are, you know, there's just this common a common bond, but a very strong common bond, and and just a an expectation, and you know, the way people have responded to me when I've reached out, and I try to do the same thing when uh, when other grads or including younger grads reach out to me for for advice or counsel or or just or, or for time that is this idea that we're part of a, we are part of a, of a very tight-knit a very special group of of alumni and yeah we we look out for each other regardless of whether we went to school together we we're 10 years apart 20 years apart uh you know or they have any common connection beyond the the west point connection but it's just that the specialness of that of that bond that that transcends uh, transcends everything else. Yeah, I totally agree. Even if they're uh, a Naval Academy grad, I, you know, <laughs> I, I do what I can to help, right? <laughs> Not get too carried away. Uh, yeah. <laughs> hey, spe- speaking of our, our rockbound Highland home, have you been back to West Point recently? Have you attended any alumni events? I know you live in the West Coast. Have you done anything, you know, West Point related on on the West Coast? The last biggest event that we had was the um, 20 year reunion. And that was right in the smack of middle of, of COVID. And so, um, you know, I made the decision not, not to go because I had a, a young child and everything that was going on in the world was kind of crazy. But what I do is, you know, there, there have been, there are actual um, pockets of, uh, alumni gatherings, networking events that um, I do attend on a regular basis here in the Bay Area, right? Whether it's getting together to watch the Army-Navy game or getting together every other week for happy hour um, to get with uh, uh, other alums to, to ask them questions for advice um, or just sit down and have a beer, Right. Um, like you said, Todd, we're all very, very busy, but it is, there's something to be said just to take, you know, an hour break and connect with alums that, um, who have had a very different experience than, than other alums might've had. Right. So that's kind of how, how I keep in touch with the network, um, from, from that perspective. Okay. Yeah, I've got. I've, I have to add, as you know, my son's a, a plebe in the class of 2026, and my wife and I went up last Saturday. It was a, a doubleheader basketball game. It was Army Army Navy basketball weekend, and so there was the the women's game, which was very exciting, and 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 the uh, the Army women prevailed, and then there was the men's game after that, which was uh, which was also terrific. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we led most of the game, and fortunately, at the end, it got away from us. But just 
I had never been to an Army Navy basketball game, and just the the sense of camaraderie and, and the sense of spirit, uh, you know, in the in the building in Crystal Arena was uh, was tremendous. Yeah, absolutely. I think I ended up seeing you at a football game. Maybe it was like the. 10 year or 15 year reunion i can't remember probably was your 10th year reunion um, and my 20th right since we're 10 yeah yeah and and i think i ran into you at mikey stadium totally unplanned obviously but um yeah yeah for sure (laughs) so steve one of the questions i've really been interested in asking you is uh what advice would you would you give to young veterans listening who are either just starting in their civilian careers or maybe mid-career but are thinking to start a a company of their own, thinking of becoming an entrepreneur and how, what motivated you, what prompted you to make that jump uh, into entrepreneurship and what advice would you, would you give to others who may be contemplating it? You know, it was a hard decision for me because like I said, I wasn't early on in my career. I was kind of like in the middle of my career and, you know, I, I've had uh, some pretty cool roles in the high tech industry. Um, you know, I, w- I was a director at at SanDisk, um, and y- you know, I saw the growth trajectory, and it was clear there was a path to potential promotion and all that stuff, right? Um, to go from that to to start Crowds was actually a really big leap for me. And you know, I was one of those folks at MIT that I thought entrepreneurship was stupid, actually. To tell you the truth, um, a lot of my MIT classmates try to drag me to these entrepreneurship competitions or uh, seminars, and I would never go because I thought I would be, you know, in corporate America and entrepreneurship was is not for me. Um, and so I, I probably am the first to say that I was not um, planning on being an entrepreneur. I was planning on other things. But what was compelling to me was the fact it's this passion. If you're, pa- I think for young entrepreneurs, if you're passionate about doing something, if you're passionate about the business or passionate about the solution or passionate about the impact that, that your solution can bring, that for me was the fueling fire and the impetus to actually jump from uh, a nice corporate job to you know, working at a startup and, and making coffee for my, my, my team, right. Or taking out the trash. And and so, you know, for me, it was a balance between, um, I knew the passion was there, but I also had to look at the balance between risk and reward risk, obviously being, you know, there are times where I'm not going to be able to spend as much time with my family. You know, there's also the financial risks and the opportunity costs, you know, taking, taking a huge pay cut, but then there's also the reward and beyond the financial rewards, right? Rewards for me, at least, included learning, learning about something new that I haven't done before, um, meeting new folks that I haven't met before. Um, I don't have a finance background and now we have a fintech company. Uh, it's very different, right? Um and to be able to venture out and learn something new was very appealing to me. And so, you know, I looked at the risk and the rewards and, you know, I made the decision uh, to actually transition from corporate America to, um, to a startup. Uh, I think one of the things that, um, that is a must um, 
is is your solution addressing a huge pain point? So I'm talking about product market fit. Is there a product market fit? And what's interesting is there are a lot of great ideas out there. There are a lot of great solutions out there that address a pain point. But the question is, for us at least, it was, is the timing right? If we were to implement the whole blockchain token solution that I mentioned earlier, five years ago, it would have been a great solution, a great you know, way to address the pain point, but the timing wasn't right. The market wasn't ready to accept and adopt something like that. The customers were not ready to pay for something like that. And so the timing piece of it, I think, is pretty critical. You know, if you're thinking of making that transition and you have uh, an idea, is the timing right for that? Because I think that's a critical component. And then obviously the third third thing in terms of product market fit um, is, you know, do you have the right people at the right time, right, um, to build out your team? And, and let me go into a little more detail because that's just like – you know, very cliche-ish, right? We learned this from from going through um, a couple painful, painful times, right? When we first started, we wanted to hire the best. You know, we wanted to hire folks that had 15, 20 years of experience that are experts at X, Y, and Z. We soon found out that at that point in time, we didn't need those folks. We needed folks that were flexible, were able to learn prioritize learning, were able to um, enjoy doing things outside their comfort zone. Uh, you know, someone might have had finance experience, but they're willing to do sales and they find it really invigorating. Um, so early on, we could have probably done much better if we hired folks that had the right behaviors as opposed to the skill sets. Now um, that we're more established, you know, hiring the right people has changed. Now we're looking at folks that have had deep finance experience, that have had deep data um, experience, machine learning type stuff, right? And, and so what I'm trying to say is depending on the stage of your company, it will warrant what type of people you need at that given point in time, right? Um, and, and so... You know, that's that's something that we learned um, the hard way because a lot of folks that we've hired, they left because they, they just couldn't do anything outside their comfort zone. And so looking back, I think, you know, hiring the right people at the right time is is probably pretty critical and could have helped us accelerate even faster. A, a lot of good takeaways in there, starting, starting with passion, having a passion to be an entrepreneur and a passion about an idea or a product or a service timing and, and, and people. You know, Steve, as we wrap up here, any closing comments for our audience or anything we, we didn't cover today that you'd like, to, you'd like to touch on? I do really feel um, very fortunate to be a part of the, the West Point network, right? Not only has it opened up doors and gotten us into organizations because of that connection, but, I mean, I've known you for almost 20 years, Todd, right? I don't think that would have happened without that strong alumni network that became the foundation for that introduction, right? So 
you know, I feel very fortunate, blessed to be a part of this network. You know, it's funny because I, I felt like an admissions mistake when I first showed up at West Point. That makes two of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I really do truly value this network and um, and and the things that it's it's done to help me grow as an individual and, and as a professional. So oh, excellent. Well, thank thank you very much. Thank you for sharing your your perspectives and your insight. And I've I've really enjoyed spending spending the hour with you. Thank you, Todd. I, I feel the same way. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. This has been a production of the WPAOG Broadcast Network. Please take a moment to rate and review the show and join us each week for a new episode. Thank you for listening.